Amen. I'd ask you if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Revelation chapter 11. It's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be looking at the first 14 verses together. This is an enigmatic passage, but a passage that has some very sweet truths for us to think about together this morning. And I'd ask you, once you have that, if you would stand with me as I read this to us. Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 to 14. Then I was given a measuring reed like a rod with these words, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count those who worship there. But exclude the courtyard outside the temple. Don't measure it because it's given to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days, dressed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. They also have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. When they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the main street of the great city, which figuratively is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And some of the peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will view their bodies for three and a half days and not permit their bodies to be put into a tomb. Those who live on the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. Great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud where while their enemies watched them. At that moment, a violent earthquake took place. A tenth of the city fell. And 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Take note. The third woe is coming soon. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. As we look at this passage together, well, this week I was reminded of a friend who showed me his chicken coop on his farm, and it was a nice one, and it had a high fence around it, and I understood the high fence was there to keep out the coyotes and to keep out the foxes, but he also showed me several trees that he had planted near the chicken coop, and I didn't quite understand why they were there, so I asked him, why did you plant the trees? And he said, because of the hawks, because if there's no trees, there'll be no place for the chickens to hide. When the hawk comes down to get them, they'll have no hope. And as I thought about it, I thought it would be pretty awful to be a chicken looking for a place to hide and not be able to find any place to hide when a hawk is coming after me because chickens don't do well against hawks. And I felt a little bit like a chicken with a hawk circling overhead and no place to hide this week. That's because when you look at Revelation chapter 11, there is no place for pastors to hide. <laughs> what I mean by that is that this vision is so detailed and so striking that it enforces those, it forces those who interpret it to be clear 
about whether they understand that it should be interpreted basically symbolically or basically literally. But making that choice is difficult because very good arguments can be made on both sides of the equation. Robert Mounts put it this way in his commentary. He says, in turning to the matters in Revelation 11 verses 1 to 14, we come to a passage that is universally recognized as difficult to interpret. Part of the problem stems from the necessity of having to take a rather clear-cut position on the interpretation of apocalyptic language. For those who believe that the passage should be interpreted basically literally, the details of the passage are so striking that when interpreted literally, one feels like he's watching a Marvel movie. For those who believe the passage should be interpreted basically symbolically, the details of the passage are so striking that the person preaching in that way is kind of forced to admit, at least tacitly, that the, the many details that are given here are basically inconsequential as it relates to the meaning of the text. So what's a chicken like me to do? Well, for those of you who lean more literal in your understanding of the book of Revelation, I have good news for you this morning. I likewise interpret this passage more literally. But for those of you that lean more symbolic in your interpretation of the book of Revelation, I've got good news for you as well. This passage teaches such sweet truths that are so clear so that we can rejoice in them together as we study this passage together. And let's pray that God would help us as we do it. So we're continuing our study in the book of Revelation. We find ourselves once again in an interlude. There was an interlude between the sixth and the seventh seal. And in that interlude, there were two visions. Those visions were given there to instruct God's people and to encourage them. Similarly, as we worked our way through the trumpets now, we are in between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. And there's once again an interlude, and there are two visions there as well. And once again, these visions are there for the sake of encouragement and instruction. Now, last week we looked at chapter 10 and we saw the vision of the mighty angel with a scroll. And we said that that vision was you know, basically a commissioning or a recommissioning service for the apostle John, uh, who would take on the role of a prophet who is bringing the end time prophecy of God, his final plan for all of history, including most especially God's determination to judge those who oppose him. Now, this morning, we're looking at this second vision, and the vision is most especially about two witnesses. There's a temple that we're going to discuss, but then flowing out of that, you have these two witnesses and all the vivid detail that we just read as we read through this passage. Now, as we said at the beginning of the sermon, commentators, they really do differ strongly about the best way to understand this passage. Some are basically symbolic in their understanding. Some are much more literal in their understanding. But whether you view this passage more symbolically or more literally, the main point of this passage is clear, and that is that God will protect his people so that his word goes forth. God protects his people so that his word goes forth, and we're going to fix our hearts on truths like that this morning. If you're taking notes, we're going to first do an exposition of the passage. That's going to be a bit lengthy, so hang in there with me. And then we're going to focus our hearts on three key truths that you see in this passage. If you're taking notes or if you received the handout when you came through the door this morning, there are three truths that we're going to cover from Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 to 14. The first is that all authority is granted by God. The second truth is that God's word will go forth. And the third truth is that God permits his servants to suffer, but he always protects them from ultimate harm. 
And that's really a theme that we've seen as we've worked our way through this book over and over. Before we dive into the passage, let me make three comments to kind of orient us. First, once again, it is fair to say that this is a difficult passage to interpret. So I'm going to present my view. I'm going to defend it as strongly as I can, but know that I could be swayed from some of my conclusions in this passage. I just could, because there are very good arguments that can be made on both sides of this. In my opinion, this is one of those parts of Revelation that we would all be wise to kind of uh, study it and come up with our understanding of what we think it means, but then hold that with an open hand and be humble because we may be surprised at how the Lord Jesus chooses to fulfill this passage in times ahead. Now, while I believe much of Revelation 11 should be understood literally, uh, you'll get it, but I just think it's too detailed. I just think it's too detailed. So I do think it should be understood primarily literally. There are clearly symbolic elements. Actually, I'm going to argue that the first two verses, which is this vision of a temple, should be understood symbolically. And we're going to talk about what that means in just a few minutes. Now, that doesn't mean that there won't be a literal temple at the end of time. There may be, but I don't think that that's what these two verses are talking about. I think they're talking about something else. Now, instead, what I'm going to say and I'm going to argue is that I understand this temple and John's act of measuring the temple to be a, a sign or a symbol symbolizing that God will protect his people in the last day. And particularly looking at the context, the entire chapter itself of chapter 11, I think the people that God has most in focus would be Jewish individuals who put their trust in Christ and so are saved in the last days. That said, God will protect all of his people during the tribulation, whether they are Jew or Gentile, because God always protects his church. There's a third statement I want to make. I do understand the temple, verse you know, 1 and 2, should be understood symbolically. But then I think that verse 3 to verse 14, which is really kind of a vision of these two witnesses, should be understood more literally. In other words, the Lord promises to protect his people in verses 1 and 2, and then he gives us a picture of that, a picture of that protection in verses 3 to 14. Now, let me give you six reasons why I believe we should interpret the vision of the two witnesses literally. Six reasons. First, the vision of the two witnesses is a prophetic vision. It's a prophetic vision. Remember, I understand the book of Revelation to be most fundamentally a, a prophecy with apocalyptic elements that has implications for how I read and understand this book. I do understand this vision of the two witnesses to be special in a way that I want you to see. So in other words, do you notice that John does not begin his recounting of this vision of the two witnesses by saying, then I saw two witnesses. He doesn't say that. Instead, the vision of the temple seems to flow into the vision of the two witnesses so that there's kind of an organic connection between the two. And the first thing that John hears in the second vision is God himself speaking and making a prophetic promise. He says, I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days. And actually, as you read through the narrative, God's saying over and over, I will, I will, I will, I will all the way down. In other words, I believe that God is here telling us what he intends to do in the last days in this particular 
instance where he'll be sending two literal witnesses. You could call them preachers. You could call them end times prophets. They will be individuals who will have a ministry in the last days. And I do believe this passage teaches that through their ministry, many Jews will be saved. We'll talk about that. Second, I want you to see that the, so, so it's, a, it's a prophetic vision. God's saying, what I will do, I will do, I will do, seems to be focused on the future. Second, the time frame of the witnesses' ministry seems to be literal as well. We do not have time to go into it this morning. There's much debate among scholars and good debate among scholars, but I do understand the 1,260 days of the witnesses' ministry to be the same period of time as the last half of Daniel's 70th week. Now, you can read about that in Daniel chapter 9. But the first 69 of Daniel's 70 weeks were literal weeks of years. I believe you can demonstrate that historically. And so it makes sense that the 70th week would likewise be a literal week of years. And the second half of which, three and a half years, lines up precisely with 1,260 days. And that period will be marked by great turmoil where the Antichrist himself is reigning. And there this prophetic ministry will occur with these two end times prophets. Third, the miracles the witnesses perform have already been performed in biblical history. So we've seen miracles like this before. The first miracle we're going to see is most unusual because it talks about fire coming out of their mouth. We'll talk about that. But it is true that Elijah spoke a word and fire fell from heaven repeatedly and consumed individuals. He spoke the word, fire came down from heaven and consumed God's enemies. Uh, Elijah also prayed and it didn't rain on Israel for three and a half years. That occurred in biblical history. And then Moses turned the waters of the Nile to blood. So Revelation is indicating to us that actual miracles or even plagues, you could call them, that have occurred before in biblical history will once again happen at the end of time. I understand this again to be more literal and we should understand it that way. Fourth, the location of the ministry of these two witnesses is an actual place. So in verse 8, uh, John goes to great detail great lengths, to describe Jerusalem. First, he describes Jerusalem in terms of its spiritual apostasy. He calls it Sodom and Egypt, these great and notoriously evil cities. And then he clarifies precisely what he means. He doesn't mean Rome. He means Jerusalem. How do we know that? Because he says, where also their Lord was crucified and Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. If the place of the two witnesses' ministry is a real place, it argues, in my opinion, that the ministry itself of these two end times witnesses would be a real ministry. Uh, again, I think the Lord's talking about actual things that are going to happen. Fifth, the witnesses have a real relationship with Jesus. If you take the passage at face value, it seems to indicate that again. Look at verse 8. Uh, he describes Jerusalem as the place where the witnesses will be martyred. And then he sets it apart once again by saying, where also their Lord was crucified. Their Lord. Uh, he's talking about Christians. That's the face value reading there, where their Lord was crucified. They have an actual relationship with Jesus, which indicates to me that once again, we should be interpreting this passage more literally. Sixth, the fact that the two witnesses are called witnesses argues for them being real individuals as well. The word translated witnesses there, it's the Greek word that gives us the English word martyr. 
And everywhere that word is used in the New Testament, it is talking about actual individuals, not symbols, not movements. It's talking about actual individuals. I think it's just another piece in the puzzle, putting together the fact that as we interpret this passage, we should interpret this passage more literally. So looking at the details of the vision of the two witnesses, it seems clear to me anyways that God is giving us a prophetic vision here. We're not going to understand everything that's here, but I do think we should be fundamentally reading this as God giving us a a foretaste, if you will, of coming attractions what will happen during the final days of human history. Now, admittedly, that was a very brief orientation. Let's look at this passage together. You were supposed to laugh at that. That was supposed to be a joke, which teaches me as a pastor not to try to put jokes into my sermons. It's a very good lesson for me for the future, right? Verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2, okay? It's not a brief orientation. It was long, but that's all right. Take your copy of God's word and look with me, if you will, at verses 1 and 2. John sees a vision of the temple here. Uh, Presumably, this is the temple in Jerusalem. You know, if you look at the entire context of the chapter, clearly John is talking about events happening in Jerusalem. The word temple there, it doesn't refer to the entire temple complex. It's a word that really speaks of the temple building or structure itself, which would include the holy of holies and the holy place. But John also seems to have in his mind a vision of kind of three courtyards that extend beyond there because he talks about measuring those who gathered for worship. So outside of the structure, the temple building itself, there was the court of priests and priests were allowed to have close access, if you will, to the temple. And then there's the court of Israel, the second courtyard out. That's where male Jews would have access to come and worship. And then there was the court of women. And that's where women could come. Jewish women could come and they could worship the God of Israel. That seems to be the area that John is given a measuring read like a rod, and he's told to go and to measure that area, the temple itself and those who are worshiping there. But do you notice in verse 2 that John is told not to measure everything? He's not supposed to measure everything. He says, but exclude the courtyard outside the temple. Don't measure it because it's given to the Gentiles and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, this courtyard outside the temple is almost certainly the court of Gentiles, which would have been the outermost court. And that's where Gentiles were allowed to come, as it were, drawing near to the God of Israel in the Old Testament, of course. That picture is there. And they come into that court, and they're allowed to be there, but they're not allowed to pass that court to go any further towards the temple. And if they do, Rome had actually authorized the Jewish authorities to put to death any Gentile that dared to cross past the court of Gentiles. I think this is the area that John is not supposed to measure. He said, don't measure that part. So what are we to make of the measuring? Let's just think first about the measuring. What are we to think about the measuring? How do we understand this? Now, most commentators understand the measuring to be going on that is going on in verse 1 and then verse 2 as well to be symbolic and specifically symbolic for God's protection of his people. Measuring is used that way in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament book of Zechariah chapter 2 verses 1 to 5, the prophet Zechariah is told to measure Jerusalem. And having measured Jerusalem, God then speaks to him and says he's going to be a wall around Jerusalem. He's going to protect Jerusalem. I think that's the dynamic, that's the picture that you're seeing here uh, when John is commanded to measure this temple. 
It's protection that's in view here. It's how it seems best. I think in light of the rest of Revelation 11, it seems best to understand this temple to be speaking specifically of believing Jews, those who will be putting their trust in the Messiah in the last days. Though again, God's protection extends to all of his people, Jew or Gentile, because God loves his church. Now, what are we to make about the court of Gentiles that's excluded? What, what is God saying to John there? How are we supposed to understand that exclusion. Well, notice that a reason for this is given. Uh, it says, because it is given to the nations, uh, that word just speaks of Gentiles, the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. It is interesting to know that 1,260 days is the same period of time as 42 months, which also happens to be the same period of time as three and a half years that we've talked about from the book of Daniel before maybe from a different perspective, and we'll have a chance to talk about that later on when we get to chapter 13. But, but he says, because it's given to the nation. So while the temple proper and the measuring of the temple proper, I believe we should understand to be symbolizing God's protection of his people, uh, there are those that are not protected in this vision. So what does that mean? What does the command not to measure the court of the Gentiles mean? There are two options I want to present to you. The first view is that the part of the temple measured represents God's protection of those Jews who will be putting their trust in Jesus, their Messiah, in the last days. But the unmeasured court of the Gentiles represents those Jews who have rejected the Messiah. They are apostate. They do not follow Jesus. And so they are not under God's protection. I think that is a possible interpretation. I do not hold that view. I embrace a second view, which sees the part of the temple measured as representing God's spiritual protection of his people. His spiritual protection of his people. But the unmeasured part to indicate the fact that even though God's people will be protected spiritually, they will not be protected physically. There's going to be a trampling that will occur. Now, why do I believe that? I believe that for this reason, because we see that exact dynamic uh, appear as you work our way through chapter 11. It's very clear as we work our way through this chapter that the two witnesses will be protected spiritually, ultimately. And yet it's also very clear that they will be physically harmed. They'll actually be killed. I think that's how we should understand the measuring and the unmeasuring. It's a representation of God's commitment to protect his people. We will be protected from all spiritual harm, which is to say we'll be protected from all ultimate harm. Because the worst our enemies can do to us is take our life. But they can't touch our soul. And we will live with the Lord forever and ever and ever in a perfect world. Now looking at verse 3, notice again that the vision of the two witnesses does not begin with John saying, and I saw. That phrase, and I saw, is repeated over and over. John's seeing these different visions, but now John's hearing something. He sees the vision of the temple, but now he's hearing something and God begins to speak and God begins to say what will occur so I understand this again to be a prophetic vision where God makes a promise of what he'll do in the last days. So look at verse 3, and I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days dressed in sackcloth. Now John MacArthur in his commentary, he describes these two witnesses vividly. He says, in the future, during earth's darkest hour, God will raise up two exceptional and powerful preachers. 
They will fearlessly proclaim the gospel during the last three and one half years of the seven-year tribulation, the period that Jesus called the Great Tribulation. Now, while that description does sound a bit like the, you know, the beginning of a movie trailer, I do think it's basically accurate. I do think it's basically accurate. I do think the Lord is telling us here that there will be two individuals that will have a ministry at the end of time, and they will minister actively in defiance of the Antichrist which, if you're following my understanding of Revelation, means it's going to get pretty weird at the end. It is. It is. It's going to get pretty weird. Uh, but weird for us doesn't mean it's not true, and it doesn't mean that's not what the Bible's teaching. We need to wrestle with what does the text itself say. So you have the Antichrist rising, the nations following him, or trampling the temple. You see that imagery. And then you have these two end times prophets that are going to be actively ministering in light of this. Now, you, you get something of the nature of their ministry when you look at verses 3 to 7. So verse 3 to 7. Look at verse 3. We see that they will be clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth is thick, dense material. It was often used in mourning. And the idea is that the message of these prophets will be one of woe and grief and condemnation for those who dwell upon the earth because they have rebelled against God. And they're going to be mightily empowered by the Holy Spirit as they fulfill their ministry. So look at verse 4, where the two, two witnesses are described as the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now that imagery, the two olive trees, the two lampstands, it's taken directly from that passage in Zechariah 4, which is why Ryan uh, read it for us earlier in the service. And there, the two olive trees, they stood for two representatives who stood before God, who had a particular ministry among the people of Israel. Those representatives were Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the priest, who together, through the political side and the religious side of the life of the people of Israel, were supposed to help the people of Israel coming out of captivity get acclimated, if you will, once again into the land where they could rightly worship the Lord and verse 6 of chapter 4 makes it very clear that the power of the ministry of these two individuals, Zerubbabel and Joshua, was the Holy Spirit. What a good reminder for us that we can do nothing apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so what a good thing to stay close to Jesus and to pray for the Holy Spirit of God to be at work in us so that we could actually live in such a way that our lives matter for eternity. Let's pray that way. In the same way, these two end times witnesses will be empowered by the Holy Spirit to fulfill their ministry, which will to be to oppose the Antichrist, warn a lost world, and ultimately, I believe we see at the end of this chapter, lead a, a great many Jewish people into faith in Jesus. Now look at verses 5 to 7. You see that the ministry of these prophets is going to be marked by mighty miracles. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. They also have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. Now, some of these descriptions certainly do seem symbolic, right? It seems unlikely that the, these two witnesses are going to breathe out fire the way that dragons, you know, are pictured as breathing out fire. But again, do recall that the miracles that are pictured here are things that have happened or similar things have happened in biblical history. So again, Elijah speaks a word and fire comes down from heaven. And friends, that's weird. That's weird in our day. It was also weird for the captains of the 50s that were consumed by the fire, 
And yet that actually happened. And Elijah did pray and the sky was closed for three and a half years, which is a catastrophe for an agrarian society. Actually, it's a catastrophe for any society. And Moses did turn the waters of the Nile to blood. So there may be symbolic elements here, but I do think we're supposed to understand most especially that the ministry of these two witnesses will be marked by powerful preaching, but also by powerful displays of miracles as they fulfill the ministry that God will entrust to them. And notice in verse 6, this stood out most of all to me as I thought about it, what this would be like. The second part of verse 6, it seems that God gives them absolute sway as it relates to how often they are performing these miracles. Uh, It says they're able to do so whenever. They can strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. And needless to say, that will not make them popular with the men and women of the world who are suffering at the hands of these prophets. So here's the question, who are these prophets? Who are these individuals? Well, the early church was almost uniform in its understanding that these two individuals were Elijah and Enoch because neither Elijah or Enoch died. And the Bible declares that it's, it's uh, required, it's appointed to man once to die and then to come to judgment. Many others since that time have suggested Moses and Elijah. And there's a number of interesting incidents that happened in Moses and Elijah's life and ministry, including the Mount of Transfiguration in the New Testament, where they both show up again. And they believe that these, uh, these two mighty prophets, Moses and Elijah, will return to earth in the last days. And they will war, as it were, against the Antichrist. And again, the miracles that are listed here are reminiscent of the ministry of Moses and Elijah. So I say that's possible. But I think the best we can say is that the two witnesses will minister in the spirit and power of Elijah and Moses. I don't think we can say for sure that it is Elijah or Moses or anyone else. The Bible simply doesn't tell us. But it does tell us what the ministry will be like. Notice also that despite the great power that they demonstrate, these two two witnesses will not be invincible. So you see that in verses 7 to 10. When they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the main street of the great city, which figuratively is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And some of the peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will view their bodies for three and a half days and not permit their bodies to be put into a tomb. Those who live on the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. So now we are introduced for the first time to a new character, the beast that comes up from the abyss. Who is this? Well, we'll see more details about him in chapter 12 and 13, most especially chapter 13. But this is the Antichrist. This is the man of lawlessness. This will be an end-time world leader. And his uh, rule, as you can tell, because he comes up from the abyss which is an actual place, according to Luke 8, verse 31. He comes from the abyss, at least his power comes from the abyss. He will be a satanically or demonically empowered end-time figure who will violently oppose God and persecute all who follow Jesus. And it says the Antichrist will make war on the two witnesses and kill them and leave their bodies unburied in the street of Jerusalem. Again, Jerusalem, it's the city where their Lord was crucified. Now, how will the people of the world respond to that? Joy, utter joy, elation, celebration breaks out. Why? Because because they had been tormented by the ministry of these faithful witnesses. 
And so, for three and a half days, their bodies lie in the streets. It's a show of great disrespect. It's also an opportunity for the entire world, and particularly those in this city, to celebrate and gloat and exchange gifts. Again, the details mean something, friends, and that's one of the challenges if you understand this passage symbolically. The details mean something. What do they mean? Well, this is what you see. You see the world and its opposition to God bursting forth after three and a half years of faithful ministry and faithful preaching. The hearts of the men and women of this world, well, they're still diamond hard. They're still opposed to God. But then God steps in, and that's always the hope, isn't it? God steps in. Look at verse 11. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet. And great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that moment, a violent earthquake took place. A tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Just when the Antichrist and those who follow him think that they have won and overcome and they're celebrating in that moment, God, God gives life once again. He resurrects these two witnesses, these two end-time prophets or preachers, if you will, and all of the inhabitants of the city are looking on. And how do they respond? Well, they respond exactly the way you would expect them to respond. They're terrified and they're bewildered. And then at that same moment, a massive earthquake hits the city and it's partially destroyed and many are killed. And notice what happens next. It's not what you expect. It's revival. I think that's what we see here. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, friends, non-believers are not characterized by giving glory to the God of heaven. And when you look at how the inhabitants of the world respond after other plagues, they don't respond with anything but venom and hatred to God. But here, this is this unique instance where they give glory to the God of heaven. So what's going on? Well, it seems that God uses the resurrection and ascension of the witnesses and the earthquake to convince unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem in the last days that he is the true God and repenting, they come to faith in Christ. That seems to be what this passage indicates. So we come to full circle. It seems that the ministry of these two witnesses is enormously fruitful after all. It leads to a wholesale repentance among Jews living in Jerusalem. Perhaps we should understand it to be part of the way that the Lord intends to bring a vast majority of ethnic Jews to himself at the end of time. Perhaps it's that. Romans 11 verse 26 speaks of that. But certainly this is part of the way that the Lord will protect his people, which is what this chapter is about. This is part of the way the Lord will protect his people, not only the two witnesses who safely ascend to heaven, but those Jews who then put their trust in Jesus and become a part of the church. And then in verse 14, you see this statement is said that all that remains of the pouring out of God's wrath is soon to come because the sixth trumpet blast has come to an end and the seventh trumpet blast is coming soon. It's about to sound. It's coming soon. Now that's a that's a lot to cover, admittedly. In our time, I want us to kind of dive back into this chapter, and I want us to think about three truths that we see here that I trust will be encouraging for all of us as we look at this passage. The first truth is that all authority is granted by God. All authority 
is granted by God. Look at verse 2. But exclude the courtyard outside the temple. Don't measure it because it is given to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And then in verse 3. I will grant my witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Speaking of his own suffering, Charles Spurgeon once said this. He says, it would be a very sharp trial. It would be very sharp and a trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand and that my trials were never measured out by him nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. And he was speaking of the great comfort he received from knowing that God is sovereign over the trials that enter his life. It was a great comfort to him, and it should be a great comfort to all of us to know that our God is sovereign even as we suffer. But it would be a similarly hard experience to imagine that God was not the one who is ultimately behind all authority, all human authority, whether that authority is used for evil or for good. We need to be careful what we mean when we say that. But if God was not behind the authority, if he was not uh, involved in some way, it would mean that he was not in complete control of that authority. But the Bible teaches that our God is sovereign. He's in complete control. And we see God's sovereignty over all authority, all human authority here. Authority that's used for evil and authority that's used for good. In verse 2, God grants authority to the nations to trample the holy city of Jerusalem. That is authority that is used for evil. It had been granted to them. By whom? By God. God granted them that authority to do that. But then verse 3, God grants authority to the two witnesses to prophesy. That's authority that's used for good. And who's behind it? God's behind it. God's the one who grants him the authority to prophesy in that way. He authorizes and accomplishes it to accomplish his good purpose. And that's what we must say about both instances. God is at work in both circumstances to bring about his good purposes, whether the authority is being misused by those in human authority or whether it's being used for good. God, the one who is sovereign, is behind all things. He is working out good purposes. So what's the application for us? We can always rest for one thing. We can always rest in the fact that our God is sovereign and that he's in control. That's one way we can apply it. Another is that we can praise God and we should praise God for his sovereignty over all human authority. It means that God is at work. Even in the bad use of authority, it means that God is at work to accomplish his sovereign purposes. And the thing about God is he's really strong and he's really smart and he's really in control and he really will accomplish all of his good purposes. And so we must not fret and worry and panic and fear. Instead, we should entrust our soul to a faithful creator while doing good knowing that he is completely in control. Now, this is so practical for us because we are living in a day where we're just uh, about a month, a little over a month away from a major election. It will have implications for who will lead state and local governments throughout our country for the next several years. And as Christians, we want to be good stewards of the responsibility, the privilege we have to vote. We really do want to be good stewards of that. It's a privilege. It's a responsibility. It's really a stewardship we have. And so we should pray and we should be informed and we should vote and we should vote for candidates that are going to do things that God approves of. 
like fighting for unborn babies, we should vote for candidates that do that. And for candidates that say they're going to protect marriage as it's understood between one man and one woman, we should vote for candidates like that because the Bible tells us those are good things and we want to see those things promoted. Uh, we should vote for candidates who have sexual sanity, who understand that there is a male and a female and there are only male and female and that is manifestly obvious and they're willing to say so and they're willing to reason and help people understand why it's so good and beautiful that God has designed things the way they are so that people are not led astray and harmed so seriously, so seriously. So many young people now coming back mourning because when they were so young, physicians did terrible things to them and those things can never be undone. There are very serious implications to ideas. And as Christians, we need to be thoughtful and we need to understand ideas and we need to be able to argue ideas in a biblical and a godly way. And we need to vote for candidates who will do things that God says is good because we want to love our neighbors ourselves. That's important. We want, to, we want to vote for candidates that will fight for equal justice under the law for everyone. Your ethnicity should not matter. Your socioeconomic status should not matter. Your level of education should not matter. And we want candidates that want the law to be equal for everyone in this nation. And we should vote for candidates like that. Here's what we should not do. We should not live in dread of the wrong candidate getting into office as if God's purposes for the world are being thwarted. We shouldn't do that. We do want godly politicians. We need godly politicians. It's a great blessing to have godly politicians, but we should never fear, nor should we act like God's purposes will be hindered if the wrong politician gets into office as if God is small and pathetic because he's not small and he's not pathetic. Nor do we want to act like our politician will bring heaven on earth, even if he or she promises to bring heaven on earth because basically they all do. We understand they do not have the authority to bring heaven on earth. The kingdom will come when Jesus brings it. That's when the kingdom will come. And so we want to be wise in the way we understand even the things that politicians promise to us. And we want to understand, you know what? This is just a man. And this is just a woman. And this world has been subjected to futility. So we're not going to act like the Messiah has arrived until Jesus comes. And then we're going to celebrate when he comes. So brothers and sisters, this passage teaches us that God is sovereign over all human authority, and that is dramatically important for us. It's dramatically important for the way we live our lives. Praise God that we know that God is bigger than any election. So let's pray and let's vote, and then let's glorify God by trusting God and moving forward with great confidence because our God is sovereign over all human authority. There's a second truth we see in this passage. God's word will go forth. Uh, this stands out so clearly. Look again at verse 3. I will grant my two witnesses authority to what? To prophesy for 1,260 days dressed in sackcloth. And then look at verse 7. Skip down to verse 7. When they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war on them, conquer them, 
and kill them. Now, this is encouraging truth. If there's anything that you see from the ministry of these two end times prophets, it's that God's word will go forth and nothing will hinder it. Nothing will hinder it. That's kind of the image you get when someone tries to attack them. Those, those enemies, they're consumed, right? Nothing can hinder the ministry of the word going forth. Nothing can stop them until they have finished their ministry. What is it? It's a picture of the reality of God's word going forth under God's control. Satan does his worst, but he cannot stop God's word from being proclaimed all around the globe. And that's a wonderful thing because think about it. It's the Lord's day. Think about how miserable Satan must be every Sunday when God's word goes forth all across the world. It's already done that today. It's done that in places like Australia and China and Vietnam and South Africa and France and England and Mexico. Millions upon millions of people have already heard God's word today. He's sending his word And as we see, nothing can stop the proclamation of God's word until God sovereignly says that period's done. That's what we see here. It will go forth and God's word will accomplish all that God has ordained for it, ordained for it to accomplish. That's the hope of any preacher. Uh, It's not that that Bryce or myself or one of the other pastors of the church are going to get up and with our own intelligence and our, our own ability to communicate, we're going to change hearts. You can't change hearts. Only God can change hearts. Only God grants repentance. Only God opens blind eyes. Only God gives spiritual life. And yet he does so through his word and his word is powerful. It's living, it's breathing, sharper than any two-edged sword. So we must proclaim it and we must rest in passages like Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For just as the rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout, And providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. Amen? What a wonderful hope we have that God's word will go forth and it will accomplish everything God intends for it to accomplish. The application for us, brothers and sisters at Christ Fellowship, is that we must, by God's grace, guard the proclamation of his word from this place, from this place. It matters that what we do when we gather is not listen to the opinions of some man, but that we open up the Bible and we work through it and we see what God has said because God's word is the matter and not the opinions of others. And sadly, churches, they go away from this all the time. They just They just drift away from it all the time. We would be very foolish to think it can't happen here. What happens in churches? Well, they have sermons still, but those sermons are filled with personal stories and anecdotes and jokes. And they may quote the Bible, but the message that follows the Bible verse that's been read has nothing to do with the Bible verse that has just been quoted. And God's wisdom, and his word is so filled with wisdom, God's wisdom is replaced by something of a religious guru kind of a life coach who tells you how to think and tells you how to do your work well and how to have nice relationships and how to make lots of money and how to be successful. And, and, and he preaches as if all happiness is found here. And what God wants for you is to find all your happiness here. And that's not what the Bible teaches. Well, the Bible teaches that this is a wilderness. Praise God for the beauty that is here. But we're the people of Israel. We're in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. 
And it says, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so they preach as if there's no heaven or no hell, as if there's no eternity to live for. And so they preach as if everything that matters is what will happen to you in this little blip of eternity. And eternity is forever. Friends, we need to listen to what the Bible has said so that we can live in a way that will matter. So that when we stand before God, we won't say, well, God, I took all your gifts and I I used them for myself as much as possible. Aren't you pleased? No. No, that we would invest in eternity. And God's word guides us into how to do that. The Metropolitan Tabernacle, this is good news. The Metropolitan Tabernacle where Charles Spurgeon pastored, it was not begun by him. It was first formed in 1650. And for the past 372 years, it's met, it's continued to meet under different names. But for that entire period of time, they have had an evangelical preaching ministry. Now, why has that church endured for 372 years and so many other churches falter and fall away? Well, God's word is powerful. And by God's grace, that church has continued to proclaim God's word. And God has graciously seen fit to preserve the proclamation of his word in that church. And my prayer is that God would bless this church in the same way. That long after all of us are gone, the gospel would still be being proclaimed from this pulpit, from this church. And that's really the main issue, you see. The main issue is that we as a church, we would always be a church that proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ And we would do so week after week. What's the gospel? It's the message of salvation. It's the heart of the faith. It's the the reality that we're created by God. Now, friend, if you're here, you're just checking out Christianity or you're new to this or trying to figure out what you believe, we're very glad you're here. Uh, The Bible is so clear about who we are. It says we were made by God to have a relationship with him. Uh, God loves us. He wants to have a relationship with us. We were made for him. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God. They decided it'd be better to live for themselves and to do what they wanted to do. And so they led the way in that. We sinned in them. And because we come from them, we've all inherited that same sinful nature. That's sin, what it is. It's this desire to be the king or queen of my own life, to rule in my own life, to do what I want to do. It started in Eden and it's found a place in all of our hearts so that we've all been born sinful and separated from God. And sin is serious. God takes it seriously because everything we receive comes from him. And then if we are living a sinful life, what we're doing is we're taking all of God's gifts and we're using it for ourselves. And instead of glorifying him, which is what we're created for, we glorify other things. And ultimately we're living to promote ourselves and our own happiness. And we do it for as long as we possibly can until we're too old and then we die. And the Bible says that that kind of life is a tragedy. It's a tragedy. It's a wasted life because you weren't made for yourself, friend. You were made for the God who created you. And the Bible says there's no way that anyone can be good enough for God. The last thing we want you to hear when you come to Christ Fellowship is that God wants you to be a very nice person. Uh, Being nice is fine. We, We prefer nice over mean. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, the, The Bible doesn't say the way to be saved is to read your Bible every day and say a prayer and give money to people. It doesn't say that. The Bible says the way to be saved is to put your trust in Jesus, who is the only Savior God has provided, because none of us can be good enough for God. None of us can live the kind of life that would make us acceptable to the holy God. But Jesus has, and that's why Jesus is a big deal. He's the Son of God who came into this world to live a perfect life. 
He in every way honored God, glorified God, put God at the center of his life. He loved his father perfectly and he loved others perfectly. And then the only perfect man who's ever lived, just read the gospels, just read the account of his life. The only perfect man who's ever lived, what did the men and women of this world do to him? Well, we read about it in our passage. They crucified him in the streets of Jerusalem. But it was God's plan. And three days later, Christ rises from the dead, demonstrating that his sacrifice has been fully accepted by the Father. And now the good news of the gospel is if you will turn from your sin and living from yourself and instead put your trust on Christ and Christ alone, even today, God will receive you. You'll be forgiven for all of your sins, past, present, future, all completely covered because Christ paid for those sins on the cross. And you'll be welcomed by God. He will invite you into his family, as it were, to be his son or daughter. It's it's a free gift, friend. And it's offered to you this morning. Well, my prayer is that you would have ears to hear it. And my prayer is that this church would be a church that keeps that message, which the world thinks is foolish. But it's the wisdom of God under salvation and that we would keep that message central to everything we do. And God can use this church and bless this church as his word continues to be proclaimed at this church. There's a third truth. God permits his servants to suffer, but but he always protects them from ultimate harm. Look at verse 7. When they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. Now look at verse 11 and 12. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. You know, at first it seems like the witnesses are invincible. It seems like nothing can touch them. They're prophesying. Anyone comes at them, they're immediately put down. But then we find out that like all of God's servants, listen, like all of God's servants, they're not invincible. Uh, The Antichrist comes, this beast comes and attacks them and they are overcome and they are killed and their bodies lie in the streets while the men and women of the city celebrate over them and exchange gifts. It's a picture of the reality that God does permit his servants to suffer. Don't come to Christ because someone told you if you come to Jesus, your life's going to get better and better and better that everything's always going to be fun every day, and that God's best for you is that you would always have all the good toys and treasures you so desire. Friend, that's a lie. It's not true. You come to Jesus because he's better than all of that. That's why you come to him. God does permit Christians to suffer. We're not immune to pain, whether that suffering is physical or emotional, mental, spiritual. We are sifted. He does allow Satan to come at us at times according to his perfect purposes. Desires that we have remain unmet. There are all kinds of ways that we ache as we follow Jesus. Again, this is a a wilderness and we're on our way to a much better place. But you see, in this passage, the hope that we have as Christians, it's not that we're going to be nicer than other people. It's not that God likes us somehow because we're like better than other people. The hope we have in Christians is, is this, that even though we are wretched sinners who deserve God's wrath forever and ever and ever, we have received a living and abiding and imperishable hope 
where we will rise one day in glorified bodies to be with the Lord forever and ever in a new heavens and a new earth. And the picture of resurrection is there. It's there before us. Oh, what an amazing thing to think that when we die, we're immediately in the presence of the Lord. What an amazing thing to think that the day is coming, the great resurrection day is coming, when we will be clothed, as it were, again, with eternal bodies, where we will live forever and ever in a world that is so much better than this one, because all of the sad things are no more. There's no more crying and no more tears and no more death and no more sickness, because the former things have passed away and no sin. Amen. And no more sin. What a joy that will be. Friends, we should not fear suffering. We should expect it. And we should expect that God will give us grace along the way. And we should expect that God will protect us all the way home. Because that is what he's promised to do. Joni Erickson Tata put it this way. She said, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And through suffering, God will protect us as he makes us like Jesus and he will do so all the way home. And it's a wonderful hope. We've covered a lot, haven't we? It's an enigmatic, difficult passage. It teaches sweet truths. All authority is granted by God. God's word will go forth. And God permits his servants to suffer, but he always protects them from ultimate harm. These are truths that can sustain us as we enter a new week. These are actually truths that can sustain us all the way home to heaven. May God do that. Let's pray.